able to give you glory, God. It's, it's all about you in this place this morning. It's all about your kingdom advancing. It's all about us looking to your son, Jesus, and trying to become more and more like him in faith and in everything that we do. And so as we listen to your word, your holy scripture, I pray that you would come and transform us again, challenge us again, and uh, encourage us again for your glory, not ours. Amen. Amen. So uh, Tim did an excellent job last week. If you were here, uh, you'd know he was talking about the, the parable of the persistent widow, and he was encouraging us to keep praying and pray on. So I hope you've been doing that this week. And uh, we continue the series this week uh, as we walk with Jesus and his disciples towards Jerusalem. We join them just before they're going to cross the River Jordan, as it happens in this moment. And we're reading from Luke's Gospel the author Luke was a doctor. He went around getting eyewitness accounts um, of Jesus' life so he could write this book. Um, and during Jesus' journey, lots of things have happened, miracles, healings, etc. But he's also exposed the self-righteousness and pride of a group of people called the Pharisees. They were kind of the religious leaders at the time, the strictest adherents to the Jewish law in the first century. And they, they didn't want to believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. They considered themselves to be holier than thou, and they didn't like this miracle-working Uber teacher coming along uh, and claiming to be the long-awaited Messiah. They didn't like the fact that, along with that claim, he also spent time serving and eating with tax collectors and prostitutes, the despised in that particular culture at that time. And if you read Luke's Gospel, you'll know that Jesus loves people, and he loves them so much that he wants to see them saved from sin, the things that they do think and say wrong, so that they can become his disciples and follow him. Not only that, he wants them to grow and mature and reflect the heart of God and share the good news with other people, which is what we're doing currently. We're trying to do this through Alpha, but we should always be trying to do this day to day, one to one, witnessing, it's called, uh, just living like Jesus, trying to be like him. And so we're going to pick up this story where he tells another parable, another short story uh, which has got a well of truth and detail and all sorts of things. You could probably write two or three preachers based on some of the themes in this parable, but we're just going to focus uh, on, on the kingdom this morning. We're going to focus on how it advances and how we get to join in with that. And so if you've got a Bible, uh, you can turn to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, or you can watch um, the screen behind me. It should come up there. To some who were confident of their own righteousness, and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Praise God for his word. It's a great parable. And at first glance, you might think, actually, the points here, Quincy, they seem pretty obvious. I mean, Jesus kind of summed it all up for you at the end. Can't we just skip to that and have a cup of tea? Well, the answer is no. So sorry. Uh, but there, there's something I'm, I'm learning more and more uh, as I read God's word, and that is if you keep digging, and it reminded me of my training, you need to dig, dig, dig into scripture. Read it once, read it twice. And I just kept reading and reading this, and now I read some commentaries as well around it. 
it really encouraged me about reading the Word of God, and I just really want to encourage you to do that as well. Don't just read something once. Go back again and read it and read it until God speaks to you. Um, and we're going to cover um, this parable uh, together just using three headings, um, and those headings are kingdom confidence, kingdom humility, and kingdom character. So let's start with kingdom confidence. The first character in the parable is a Pharisee, of course. They would have expected to be mentioned first. And this Pharisee believes, just like all the others, that his outward behavior reflects an inward piety. He believes that living a righteous life according to the Jewish law, doing all the right things, will gain him resurrection as a reward when he dies. And he is a confident individual. And Jesus, when he tells a story, is surrounded by, these such, by such people, these confident people. It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told the parable. So that's who he's addressing. And this kind of person always makes me, this kind of Pharisee person, person who's upright and religious, always makes me think of a peacock uh, and peacocks, because I used to go swimming with my grandparents in a place called Brantridge, and they used to have peacocks, and they would have these massive plumages, and they'd strut around like this, and they'd make all the other birds feel bad. Uh, and uh, I think in the picture behind me, the, the lady peacock actually doesn't look at all impressed, which is uh, quite funny. But... Um, this is what they make me think of, these people who are just like, look at me, look how good I am, I'm beautiful, I lo love me, thank me. Uh, but they, that's it, and that's what they make, and then I went on, a, on Google, and I looked up what the collective noun is. This is quite fun to do if you have spare time, go and look up the collective noun for things. And the collective noun for a group of peacocks is an ostentation. <laughs> or a pride, which is great, uh, apparently, according to San Diego Zoo, anyway. So... They strut around, and this is a bit like a Pharisee, struts around confident of his own righteousness. And I don't know what you think of when you think of righteousness. Some people might think of moral purity. Other people might think of an object like a stiff white shirt. But whatever you think of, I just want to elaborate on that because righteousness is a, is a theme that runs through the Bible, and it, it comes up a lot, and it's a relational word. So I love it because I'm very relational. Uh, and it, it actually means to be right with somebody, to be received to be welcomed, to find favor with. And of course, the opposite of that is unrighteousness. The opposite is rejection. So it's either acceptance or rejection in a relational way, something I would probably be very sensitive to. In fact, I am. And so I'll tell you a story, give you an example of kind of rejection rather than righteousness. Um, I used to work for a big environmental consultancy, and they'd have a Christmas party every year in London. Uh, and uh, this time it was at a grand hotel. And me and my uh, Aussie colleague, We'd worked on that day, work had overrun, we'd been in, on site, on a building site, got all muddy and mucky, and it was getting late, and we thought, should we just not go? But in the end, we decided to go, he kind of persuaded me, and uh, we went along, and we didn't change our shoes, we didn't have a change of clothes, we just thought, well, it's, our, it's our party, let's just go. Anyway, so we got there, and we opened the big door of this massive hall, and everyone sat around round tables in tuxedos and posh frocks and cocktail dresses, and the big boss... Ivan is addressing everybody, and the door goes, Doom, as we go in, and everybody looks around at us, and we're like, oh my goodness, we were underdressed for this occasion. And even the friends that we had at our workplace didn't want to hang out with us. Like, that's how obvious it was that we were in these, the wrong clothing, the wrong attire. We were utterly unwelcome, unacceptable. We did not find favor with anyone. And I went home feeling pretty humiliated and embarrassed. Uh, my Aussie colleague carried on like nothing had happened, but then, you know, maybe he's just a stronger character than I am. 
Bless him. Um, but uh, that's one example. Another example um, is the moment where someone proposes a marriage proposal. It's a moment where you're assessed, where you're either welcomed in and found to be righteous in the sense of all right with the person you're proposing to, if you're the groom-to-be, or you're looked over and told, no. And that just makes me go, ouch, on the inside, and it should, because that's rejection. That's the opposite of being welcomed in. So a couple of examples there, but just to apply this again to the passage, the personal relationship that Pharisees would have prided themselves on, which they had with God, they claimed to have with God, actually, they, they considered themselves to be right with God due to the strictness of which they followed the law. And it's demonstrated in the verses 11 and 12. It says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And so he's proud of this way of living that he's uh, probably done since he was tiny. The Pharisee stands far from the tax collector, avoiding contamination, avoiding rubbing up against him and getting any of his sin rubbed off on him. And notably, in his prayer, he offers no thanks for the gifts he might have received from God, no thanks for prosperity, and he makes it more into a self-advertisement. He names robbers, evildoers as people that he is not like, but are words that would probably have been associated with the tax collector. And then he throws in adulterers for good measure as well. And then his kind of justification for his righteousness kicks in because he declares that he fasts twice a week and gives a tenth of all he gets. And he's boasting about going above and beyond what the Jewish law actually requires of him to do. And by doing so, he's equating himself to the likes of the Old Testament prophets like, and people like Moses. He's saying, I'm as good as them. Look how good I am. Very peacocky, you might say. And so in such fashion, he echoes a psalm, uh, Psalm 26. If you've got time, you can go and read it. We haven't got time today. But in that psalm, there's this kind of conviction about being, behaving a certain way and becoming righteous in that way. And so he's so sure of his position, as are Jesus' audience, that he's actually completely blind to the fact that his prayer is not actually a prayer to God at all. He is 100% convinced and I don't know if you've ever had this in your life where you, you've always done something a certain way and then somebody comes along and tells you it's wrong. It, it's not done that way. It's actually not correct. It's not hygienic. It's not the right way to do it. You might have had these disputes in your household. You might have been at your dinner table and your sibling uh, challenged you on something like this. And you are sure that you are right. So you're sure that uh, it's always been done this way. I've done it this way. Well, you might remember those emotions. You might remember that feeling. Just hold on to that for a moment. Um, you might have even gone to the extent where you, you were wanting to basically put in a wager that you were right and they were wrong. And actually, you might have even gone that far. But just hold on to that, that feeling of conviction, that kind of firmness that you felt in that moment. And we'll come back to it later. It's a kind of two-part illustration for you. Because that's the Pharisee's position in the story. He exudes pride and it's veiled in this kind of kingdom confidence, he would say. He'd say, oh, I'm, I'm with God, so therefore I am confident. Uh, but actually, it's all based on himself. He thinks that his righteousness comes from himself, but soon he will discover that that is not the case, because righteousness can only come from God. Enter the tax collector. Our next heading is kingdom humility. A tax collector follows the Pharisee up the hill, because they would have gone up the hill in Jerusalem to the temple that was on the top of a hill. And we read, he says this, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
In first century Israel, tax collectors worked for the Romans, the occupying force, and they were well known for skimming the top off the taxes, keeping it for themselves, and ripping off the Jews, the natives, uh, the, uh, those who lived in Israel. And they would have been despised, they probably would have been lonely because their own people wanted to cut them off. And so this tax collector is considered wholly unrighteous. He climbs up behind the Pharisee and stands away from him at a public meeting. Uh, it would have been a time of day, maybe 9 a.m. or 3 p.m., where, where people went to the temple together and there might have been lots of people there. And he won't even look up to God. He beats his chest. The tax collector is under no illusions, you see. He is indeed sinful and he knows it. The tax collector is brought low at a public meeting in the temple, a meeting where the sacrifice for atonement would have been taking place ahead of him. So they would have sacrificed an animal. They would have chopped it up. They would have sprinkled blood. And uh, and that word atonement, kind of making uh, payment for, would have been taking place ahead of him, culminating in a final prayer where the priest, high priest, would have, with outstretched arms toward his congregation, prayed over them, atoning for the sins of the children of Israel. So this is all taking place. Pharisees nearer, and the, and the tax collectors a long way back. And far off, at the back, anxious not to be seen, sensing his unworthiness, unworthiness to stand with those who are considered righteous, is this humble man who bangs his chest repeatedly in repentance and hope, crying out, Oh God, let that be for me. Make atonement for me, a sinner. And his humility is demonstrated. And I just want to highlight two particular things. that I, When I was digging, I found these things in the scriptures, and they really struck me. The, fir- the, one of these two, the first of these two is his sorrow. His sorrow over being a sinner. See, the man understands something of how our sins grieve God. There's a phrase in the scriptures called grieving the spirit. You might have read about that. Grieving God. And this man has grieved God. He knows it. He won't look up, and he beats his chest. And it was the beating of the chest that was the, the thing that stood out. Because in Middle Eastern culture, I learned, beating one's chest is a demonstration of extreme anguish, extreme sorrow. And it's not found anywhere else in the Old Testament, and only twice does it, uh, is it found in the New Testament. You find it here in this moment, and you find it in Luke 23, verse 48, when Jesus has just been declared righteous by a Roman centurion and passed away, died on the cross. The Son of God has just died, and then this verse happens. It says, When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. So to parallel those two, something of the magnitude of sorrow over the death of Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect one, the sacrificial lamb for the world, who took the world's sin on himself, is shown by this man in the temple. And this hasn't happened. Jesus is telling the story. He knows what's going to happen to him. He knows that this moment is going to happen, and beating of the chest is going to be uh, occurring after his death. And the tax collector he describes gets it. He understands the depth of sin in him, and the area of the chest that he is beating finds its origin human heart. It's where he repeatedly is thumping. So that was the first thing, his sorrow at being a sinner. And maybe we skim over this sometimes. Maybe we don't dwell quite long enough on how much our sin grieves God. The second thing that uh, came out from this part of the passage um, was just uh, that his desperate cry for mercy and the significance of mercy. You see, the man's cry is from his heart. 
And it's another detail that's inserted in by Jesus here that emphasizes the reality that all people are sinners and the significance of this particular person, the tax collector, in the parable. You see, Jesus, I, I read, I learned, uses a highly specialized word here in Greek for mercy, which belongs to a, a word group in Greek that's associated with the most sacred act in Israel on the Day of Atonement. In the New Testament, the verb, again, is only used twice, here and in Hebrews 2.17, where it refers to Jesus as fulfilling the duty of the high priest by atoning for the sins of the people in the Holy of Holies. And I think Hebrews 2.17 is up there on the screen for you. And so by putting this particular word in Greek in the mouth of a tax collector in the temple, Jesus is suggestively and scandalously casting him in the role of a high priest. I'm going to let that sink in for a moment. He's saying, you, you guys who are listening, Pharisees, you need to get that actually this is the significance of crying out for mercy, that actually everyone is sinful, and that actually sin is internal. It is not external. It is not to be viewed from the outside. Most of the time, it happens in your mind or in your heart. It's scandalous to them because he's putting the tax collector where they believe the most righteous people should be. And they would have been outraged, the Pharisees, who considered themselves totally unlike this tax collector, let alone the high priest. And yet, with one word, Jesus has shown them how the man came to be justified through God's mercy. You see, the tax collector makes a genuine petition for mercy. He is justified by a personal, humble prayer from his heart, not by his outward behavior. Jesus has single-handedly outlined the reality um, of something that we haven't got time to delve into in great depth today, um, justification through faith. It was demonstrated back in Genesis by Jew the Jewish father Abraham in Genesis uh, there, if you want to read it. Uh, and then it's illustrated numerous times throughout the Bible and, and in the other parables that Jesus tells. And then later, if you read the rest of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul also uh, puts a lot of time into writing about uh, justification through faith, which Jesus announces at the end of this parable with the last verse, so verse 14. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so Jesus in the verse does a complete reversal of what happened at the start of the story. The Pharisee went up first and then the tax collector. This time the tax collector comes down first, followed by the Pharisee. And the Pharisee is referred to as the other man. He's not even named. He's humbled. And perhaps just for a moment, you'll flip back to that first part of the illustration I mentioned earlier on, that moment where you thought you were right, where you were convinced, and someone's challenged the way you've always done something and told you, no, that's wrong. And I thought it was really powerful um, when Joe spoke just now about how she said to God, I'm sorry, I was wrong. That, that is such a hard thing to do sometimes if you've ever been in that position. But perhaps in your example and, or in your scenario that you're thinking of when you were convinced you were right, you, you, uh, you, were, you found out that actually, no, hang on, I am wrong. And you were humiliated and you, it made you angry and you feel a bit like Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, he goes, no, that's impossible. It can't be. And he's told that Darth Vader is his father. Spoilers. Uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, and, and this is really the moment for the Pharisees, where they hear the last line of the parable. And it's a relatively short parable, 
they can't have forgotten what happened at the start. They, they are internally breaking apart because actually now they're humiliated, they're embarrassed, their pride has been revealed because they can't argue with Jesus. They can't argue with the truth of the scriptures which they pride themselves on so much. You can imagine that disappointment. We've heard a bit about that again today. In their life's investment into being holy and righteous, being undone by a short story. And as it floats away like a dream, you can just imagine one or two of them walking away from that situation. And just to clarify uh, the purpose of the law, because this is helpful at this point, you could read the whole of Romans 3 and get a full overview of this. But just to quote you Romans 3.20, just so we get an understanding of why they've been following this law and and what its purpose is within Scripture, if if justification through faith uh, is, is true. It says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. And that's what they're realizing in the moment. They're becoming conscious of their sin. Now, where will their confidence come from? Jesus has undermined it completely. And as he concludes the, excuse me, as he concludes the parable, his audience are humbled. And so should we be, to be honest. See, when I was reading it, I got the sense that actually, as his disciples, we need to press into these things. Because Jesus wants us to continue growing. He wants us to continue maturing. Um, and so for the last few minutes, we're going to talk about kingdom character. And just recently, I've been in two contexts where the, the speaker at the front, two conferences, I should say, where the speaker has emphasized character over gifting. And it was always how I was kind of raised in this church focusing on character, thanks to Dale discipling me in the early days, he was always emphasizing character. It's character that counts, not gifting, not what you can do. It's about you know, who you are. And so for us in this last kind of heading, kingdom character, I want to spend a bit of time just dwelling on, uh, on three things, um, confidence, humility, and gratitude. Um, and my prayer is that actually we will grow in these things as we become more like Jesus and uh, as we pray about them as we reflect on them as well. So let's start with kingdom confidence. The, the confidence the Pharisee had is, is based on himself. You see, he was relying on his own righteousness. He was relying on himself, his own ability, and therefore it's shallow and it's fragile. And this can be reflected even in our culture today. You might hear people saying, you're the master of your own destiny, or it's, it's all down to you, or believe in yourself. However, This is not the case for followers of Jesus. You see, rather than believing in ourselves, we believe in Jesus in order to attain righteousness. That's where our confidence is founded, in him, not us. And I just want to unpick self-righteousness briefly. You see, self-righteousness makes the heart of a person unstable, like an active volcano. And I love geography, so that's why I like using geography uh, kind of metaphor in that way. Because when we're self-righteous, we, we set ourselves a standard to meet. And that standard might be contributed to by people in our upbringing and throughout our lives. But we set the standard, and occasionally we meet it and feel justified. However, when we don't meet our own standard, standards for life and living, we feel awful. And it could be like anxiety that, that bubbles away inside, keeping you on edge the whole time, asking the question, Will I be accepted by the people around me at school today? Will I be accepted at work? Will I be accepted at home even? Even if I succeed, 
to meet my own standard. Will I be accepted? Will I? Won't I? I don't know. Anxious. Oh. Or on the flip side of that, it could be a continual heavy guilt bursting up like ash and then floating and landing and covering everything that's produced by missed standards, by feeling unacceptable. When you don't quite meet the mark, when someone gives you maybe a bit of criticism or, or knocks you down, or even when you, you don't do something as well as you think you could, and, and I have to hold my hands up. I'm guilty of this. <laughs> I'm guilty of this sometimes. I have high standards for things, and I, I don't meet them. I'm hard on myself, but then I come back to the gospel, come back to Jesus. And before I became a Christian, anxiety was a really big deal for me. I was always trying to, to meet people's standards as well. I always wanted people to like me. I always wanted to be their friend. I would practically have five or six different personalities in five or six different locations to meet people's expectations of me. So at drama class, I was the wild and outgoing one. And then at church, I was the smart, kind of cool one who kind of had all the answers to the Bible stories. I know who Noah is, that kind of thing. And then at school, I'd be like the kind of timid, actually, just, I, I just want to be friends with everybody. And then uh, at home, I'd be like, yes, mum. Not, and not let much out. And then at times, I'd be like, I need to get everything out. So you can see how that, you've just got a picture of my younger life. Uh, but there you go. That, that was what I was dealing with. I was, in those days, I wasn't saved. My righteousness didn't come from Jesus. It came from myself. And I was always vying for approval, for affirmation, for righteousness. And interestingly, when I reflected on this, it's all very relational. Righteousness is a relational word. But thanks to Jesus, grace Jesus, we can have steady hearts that exude quiet, humble confidence. By placing our faith in Jesus, we immediately attain his righteousness, his rightness with God. And like I say, you can see Romans if you want to read more about that. When a person believes Jesus is the Son of God, is who he claims to be, believes that he died on the cross for their sin, and then believes that he resurrected from the dead, they become right with God, knowing they are accepted. And this is one of the questions I always ask people uh, soon after they've uh, put their faith in him, because I want to hear that they know that they are accepted by God. I ask them, do you know that God is your Father? Do you know that you've been received? Do you know that you are loved? And their answers reveal where their heart is and what's actually happened. Because having received righteousness through Christ, what other people think suddenly doesn't matter. And I remember the day after I gave my life to Jesus, waking up and just going, I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm just going to be me today. I'm going to be flamboyant when I want to be, and I'm going to be quiet when I want to be, and I'm not going to worry whether people think that's weird or not. Some of you still think I'm weird. Well, I don't care. <laughs> That's just how it is. My confidence comes from Jesus. You see, you gain a kingdom confidence because you have righteousness imputed to you. That means given to you from outside of yourself, not earned to be developed, just given entirely passively. All other types of righteousness are active. This is passive. You receive it. Imputation enables disciples to have confidence because it's not based on their own ability. However, this confidence needs to be balanced. It needs to be balanced with kingdom humility. And uh, I just want to read a definition by C.J. Mahaney. Sam Gwynn and I have been reading this book uh, by him. He says, humility, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And in our parable, humility is revealed by the tax collector. Jesus 
declares him justified before God because he has cried out in faith for atonement to be given to him. And this is all a person needs to do to be saved. To be justified, and this is where we could go really deep, but we don't have a great deal of time. So to be justified actually means to be viewed differently. To justify something does not mean to change something, but to change the, our view of that thing. So I'll give you a quick example. Uh, there was a high school kid in the States who was going down the hallway towards the canteen, and then suddenly he punches another guy and knocks him to the ground, knocks him out cold, in fact, and everybody runs over and rushes around him. And the principal, who'd kind of caught a glimpse of what happened, came over, took the guy's arm and said, are you out of your mind? You're going you're to get expelled for this. And the, very calmly, the young man said, would you please look in that young man's left-hand pocket? He looked in the pocket, and in his pocket was a gun. And his hand was on the gun. He said, I hit him because he was going to shoot someone. Now, he justified his behavior extremely well. He did not change his behavior. He changed the view of his behavior or how it is viewed. And to become a Christian is to be justified. You don't stop being bad or doing stuff wrong, making mistakes. I still make lots and lots of mistakes, but what's changed is how I'm viewed by God. Because I'm not viewed as the same, in the same way I was before I put my faith in Jesus. In fact, once you put your faith in him, you're viewed as if you were Jesus in front of God. And uh, Kevin actually mentioned it, that actually there's this phrase, just as if you never sinned, which is within the word justified, which I like. You see, we, our identity is those that are justified yet ungodly, honorable but failures, righteous sinners, simultaneously just but a sinner. Or if you like Martin Luther, Luther and you like Latin, it's in Latin behind me on the board. Simul justice et peccator, if you want to know. And so you see the gospel of Jesus actually creates in you a self-image that is unique because you're a loved sinner, righteous and justified before God. And it's quite easy to flip-flop on this, on this particular issue. You could flip to one side and focus too much on being a sinner and a failure, and it could all lead to despair. Or you could focus too much on being redeemed in your redeemed status, your new life, your sainthood, and think you're better than everyone else. That would be flip-flopping too far that way. But to grow in humility, we've got to walk the line of the gospel. But I walk this line between knowing we are kind of paradoxically both, in a way, which is wonderful and liberating. And actually, it does lead to humility to know you're justified before God, because it makes you get down on your knees and go, thank you for saving me, God, and then stand up and go, praise God, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner who's saved. And you, you kind of can do both. You can't really do both at the same time. You're either kneeling or standing up, I guess. But unless you've been humbled like the tax collector, you won't be filled with gratitude for God's mercy towards you because it's only by his mercy that he brings someone to faith in that way. Which brings us to our final characteristic, kingdom characteristic, which is gratitude. So at the moment, we're teaching our little son, Reuben, um, how to say thank you and please. And he uses uh, signs and he uses words occasionally. Uh, and um, to be honest, I don't really think he's thankful uh, I think he just responds to our cues when we say, say please. He goes, please. Uh, and we say, say thank you. He goes, thank you. <laughs> He's just getting used to how and when we say it, you see. I, I'd love him to turn around one day and just go, thanks, Dad, for feeding me again. I'd love that if he was just genuinely, or to Sophie, thanks, Mum, for wiping my bum again. 
You're so great at that, thanks. I'd love it if he really did do that. And I have to say, as an adult, I actually, having learned all this about being a parent, I did go to my parents and say, thank you so much, because this is really disgusting and hard. Uh, but at the same time, character building. <laughs> uh, and then in Corinthians, if you read 1 Corinthians 3, Apostle Paul, he talks about actually um, babies as well. He talks about the, the Christians there being like babies who are not yet on solid food. Rather than that, they're drinking milk. And he's talking about their maturity and growth um, and deepening their understanding of the new life they've found in Christ. And the reason I, I say those two things is because I think we can sometimes get a bit like Reuben, where we, we say thank you, but actually we haven't dwelt on how grateful we need to be towards God um, for how he saved us and how much it cost him. I think there's still growth to happen there for me personally, to, to know deeper. And this is what actually reading this parable and, and writing this preach has done for me, has actually led me to a place where I can actually appreciate more. Uh, you know, even reading those details about mercy and about sorrow of sin has led me down a path which made me think, gosh, yeah, I really do need to stop. Pause and just say thank you to God from, from the heart. Um, and so kingdom gratitude, this deep sense of gratitude for God's atonement for our sin through Jesus' death on the cross is really, really important. For responding to our cry to, for mercy, whenever that was for you, and for enabling us to be born again through faith alone in the crucified and resurrected Jesus of Nazareth, God's one and only Son. I mean, that's a huge thing. that uh, We should never let go too far from our heart and our mind. And so Jesus, he taught his disciples many things about the kingdom. He talked about it advancing, and, and he talked about it, well, he demonstrated it by healing people. He performed many miracles as well besides that. But he actually never said to people, oh, could you say... Um, you say thank you. He never said, thank me. Who would say that? He never said, you'll thank me later for that, to Peter. And the fact is, he didn't have to. Because instead of prompting the thank you from people, he just modeled kingdom character for us. Which is why we're all going to spend our lives pursuing him and asking him for help to become more like him and less like us. Developing a deeper sense of gratitude. I believe Jesus wants to see the kingdom break out here in Oxted, in Tandridge, the surrounding areas. And I believe he actually really wants us to join in and get involved as well. And that's why I mentioned these things of character, because these character development points, they're, they're significant for me, I know personally. But as people see us change, as people observe us in and around our workplaces, in our homes, and grow in confidence, humility, and gratitude. Actually, they'll start asking questions, and we will get to tell them about Jesus. And so in conclusion, kingdom confidence was our first heading. Not self-righteousness, not depending on ourselves, but confidence that comes from the kingdom of God, that comes from knowing who Jesus is and what he's done, knowing that our righteousness is only found in him. Kingdom humility, honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness, and finding out that actually we must cry mercy in order to be saved, which then produces gratitude. And lastly, kingdom character, so that we would grow in character together as a church family, and cultivation of these kingdom characteristics would take place, humility, confidence, gratitude. This is who we can become because of who we know, not what we do. And so by way of application, just two uh, things for you to take away to do this week. Um, that is, as each day begins, acknowledge your dependence on God 
and thank him for five things from the previous day. And as each day ends, transfer all the glory to God. And typically, uh, when you read a parable, you can find yourself somewhere in the story. And so lastly, I just wanted to make space for anyone who actually identified more as the tax collector than the Pharisee. Someone who even today, just by God's spirit, might have become aware that they're a sinner, that they're not right with God. And, and therefore, um, it's important for you, and I appeal to you, to submit, to surrender, to cry for mercy if you're not a Christian, if you are not saved, if you don't know that God is your Father, if you don't know that you're going to heaven when you die, and if you're struggling with anxiety and guilt as a result of trying to meet your own standard all the time, well, there's some pretty strong indicators that actually you need to say, God, have mercy on me, sinner. And so I'm just going to ask you all to close your eyes. And for anyone who does want to do that, um, you can do this in your heart or you can say it out loud after me. But it's between you and Jesus because, again, it's only Jesus. It's only through faith in him that we are saved. So pray this if you want to become a Christian and be saved from your sin today. Dear Jesus, I am a sinner. I've sinned against you. Sinned against people. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for dying for me so that my sin can be washed away. I make you my Lord and Savior now. Please send your Holy Spirit to fill me so I may live for you. Amen. Amen. Uh, we're going to respond now, and we're going to come to the end of our meeting uh, having communion together. And uh, I do believe God has got more for us. Uh, I know I sang it earlier on in kind of prophetic way, but uh, I want us to go after that. I believe it's truth that, that he wanted to speak over us today, that there's more if we pursue him more. And uh, so we're going to respond uh, having a time of reflection. And so in a moment, I want you to get into a three or a four. And we're going to start with gratitude. Go around your three or four, ask uh, people what they're most grateful for in this moment. Um, I'm pretty sure everyone will have something there. And, uh, and praise God, like, thank him for your salvation. Just dwell on that for a, for a few moments. And then I want you to ask the Holy Spirit which area uh, of the character traits that I kind of described, confidence, humility, gratitude, that actually you sense uh, you want to grow in and develop in. Um, not where you're lacking, just want to emphasize that. Just not necessarily where you're lacking, but where you'd like to grow. Uh, and then... We'll have, uh, we'll have the elements for the communion handed around, and they'll arrive with you. And when they arrive, um, you can take them as and when you will. And um, again, like Dale said, it's gluten-free bread. It's non-alcoholic wine uh, today. And uh, like I say, all you need to do in this moment is get to a three or four, and then we'll bring these things around. And I really love it when, when we do get into these groups and pray together. So I'm uh, going to encourage you to do that. Um, great. I'll pray, and then you can move, and we'll, we'll have communion together. Father God, I do thank you again for this morning. Thank you that we get to come and dwell with you. We get to praise you, give you glory, get to reflect on just how wonderful your son Jesus is and how grateful.